If you'd like to open your New Testaments to Ephesians chapter 5, there is one verse that we will read to get started in Ephesians 5 before we move into a text that we'll be spending some time in. Before we get started, once again, we want to say thank you to all who are here. We're glad that you've come. I know that probably none of you care whether or not I wear a coat while preaching, but I feel compelled to explain why I'm not wearing one. Jacob yesterday said, don't do it. Just get up there without that coat because he knew it would get me in trouble and he likes things like that. But I wore that coat and afterwards he said, you know, I'm leading singing tomorrow night. And I said, I tell you what, man, don't wear a coat. And then I won't wear one. But I knew that Jacob was going to wear a coat. And so I was definitely going to wear one and legitimately forgot it. Like legitimately forgot it. I did. I actually totally forgot it. But anyway, I I suppose that the preaching will be okay. Anyway, I didn't think about the tie in this state, though. That's, I think, three people since I came in asked me about the dark redness of the color of the tie. I always forget when you're in Alabama, you know, you got to watch your oranges and your reds. I mean, only a real goofball would wear a tie for a school that he didn't go to. So I didn't wear an Alabama tie. This is a Florida college tie, which I actually did not go to. So I don't know why I'm wearing it, (laughs) but... Someone gave it to me, and I thought if you were supposed to fly out to the lectures this week and you weren't able to go, maybe you'll feel a little bit at home or something. But we're glad that you're here. It's, a, it's an important occasion for us, isn't it? Just being gathered together as God's people to study. You know what we're here to talk about this week. We've mentioned it in each and every lesson. We just want to get to heaven, and we want our children to get to heaven, and we want them to marry people who want to get to heaven and raise children. It's called generational faith. Told you already, if you're visiting, I've got four kids at home, two teenagers and two young ones, and that's just all summer. My wife's name is Summer. That's all we want. We just want them to love the Lord. And so we're looking to do anything and everything we can. I do a lot of talking in meetings like this, but I also like to do a lot of listening. So thank you to those this week who've sat down with me or we've talked in the back and you've mentioned things that have helped you to raise faithful kids. I need that as well. This is what we need to be talking about. I was thinking about what lessons to bring in that ilk to talk about that topic. And you know, this isn't my favorite thing to discuss where we will be going tonight, but it is incredibly necessary if you really want your kids to have a chance in the kingdom. It's a topic we just have to talk about. It wouldn't do any good to talk about all the good things we were going to do and all the ways we were going to rejoice together if we had one main enemy, if there was one principal way that the devil was unrelentingly attacking us, and we just decided to ignore his number one attack in our time, that would be a foolish way to preserve the integrity of our kids. And so tonight, if you're in Ephesians chapter 5, I want to begin to introduce to you that one main primary usage where the devil is destroying families and churches and young people, and we want to see if we can defend ourselves against it. Here's what we know for sure. I was just reading this this morning, sitting there in the lobby at the motel reading. Just thought we could start here in verse 5. For this you know with certainty. I'm reading from the New American Standard Version. Ephesians 5, 5. Certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Tonight we will talk about immorality. The devil is attacking us through the means of immorality on a technological instant feedback and worldwide level that our planet has never known. 
And if we do not learn the right ways to approach it, to discuss it, and to fight it, immorality will continue to attack. I'm not going to berate you or barrage you with stories tonight about elders and deacons and preachers and members and elders' wives and deacons' wives and and preachers' wives. It's everywhere. There's practically no church that hasn't been scarred by it. But you know, our goal is kind of simple. We want to see everybody here get to heaven and all these kids grow up to get to heaven. So we're going to need to make sure that in the next generation, it doesn't happen at all. It doesn't scar our churches. It doesn't divide families. Ephesians chapter 5 has this series of terms in it. We know this for sure. There's really no question about it. That if we're engaged in immorality or impurity or covetousness, that idea of seeing and desiring, or idolatry, the replacing of God with something that doesn't belong, we just can't go to heaven. Well, all four of those terms are wrapped up in what we're talking about tonight, immorality. Immorality takes on many different forms, but we'll be focusing in on four of them as we move forward tonight. The first one is lust. Jesus talks about that. If someone in our family or someone who's a teenager or an adult, if they look at people in an inappropriate way and they think inappropriate things, what did Jesus say about that? He said it's, it's the sin of adultery before God, and it's judged in that same line before the Lord. So one of the things is just lust and really controlling who we look at and what we think. The second level to that would be this, this interesting thing called pornography. Pornography is devastating. It's instant. It's everywhere. It's on all of our devices if we aren't careful. And it's something we want to talk about tonight because now we're seeking it out and we're seeing things we were never intended to see. The third thing would be what we would call fornication by the unmarried. We're talking about our teenagers and those who aren't married yet and the activity that's taking place by that age group. If you're a little bit older than that, you may not understand this. But I had a friend who graduated a high school outside of Beaumont where I was preaching and I said, hey man, just give me a rough idea. What percentage of the people at your high school do you think are involved in fornication? He said like 97%. Like it's, it's everywhere. It's all over the place. And then lastly, of course, would be adultery. Now you're in a married relationship and there are responsibilities. And instead of looking at it from a negative perspective, I just want you to think about what the next generation of the church would look like. If no one committed adultery, no one. If none of our young people were engaged in things they had no right to be engaged in, if, if we found a way with accountability partnership and passcodes and whatever to get rid of pornography and we began to control the way we thought, what would it mean for us? Many wonderful strides in the Lord, not inhibited by the devil. That's what we're going to talk about tonight. So I need you to do two or three things, all right? Two or three things that you need to do. First thing is open your New Testaments to 1 Corinthians 6. That's most definitely what you need to do. Also, we're going to hand out some pages for you tonight. We do not have slides. Instead, there is one page, and we want to make sure every single person gets one of those. I'll give that a few minutes. I didn't want you to know where we were going until we got there, so we're handing them out, and we want to make sure everybody gets one. There are some blanks on that page. Aren't going to be any slides tonight. So what you might want to do is get a pen or a pencil and be prepared to write some things in there. There are three boxes on the right side of that page. I definitely want you writing some words in those boxes tonight. So three things you might want to do. Get ready to grab that paper, get you a pencil or pen, and most definitely open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We are going to discuss verse 18, flee immorality. You ever heard a sermon on that before? Anybody ever heard a sermon on fleeing immorality? 
I've heard lots and lots and lots of them. And honestly, if I've heard 20 of them, there were only two good ones. Can I just say, I don't mean that really, kind of I do. The approach to immorality that it's bad and you'll go to hell and stop it is not helping anyone stop it. We need to do better than that. I've heard two men do an amazing job on this topic. One of them is in the room tonight. <laughs> Kevin, it's Kevin in the back, it's not me. Heard Kevin Clark deliver a lesson on flea immorality a few years ago in Dallas. Terrific work. My kids were there. That was important to me. And then the church where I grew up, when I was quite young, I heard our preacher Steve Fontenot in Humble, Texas, walk through some things in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that I have never forgotten and use regularly. And I'm going to be borrowing from both of those men and some of the things that we share tonight. If your Bible's open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, let's read the last three verses. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 18. Reading from New American Standard, remember that in case the reading is slightly different. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Now let's talk a little bit about that. First of all, you already know the instruction. We want to stay away from lust and the fulfillment of that in pornography and fornication and adultery. But why? Because when you do that, you are defiling your own body. You're sinning against your own body that God has given you. And you might think, well, what's the big deal about that? It's my body. If I want to commit some sin that's a sin against my own body, it's mine, isn't it? Read the text. It is not yours. It is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and it is not your own. God made your body, and your body, this body, becomes the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. I don't know everything to know about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit and how that works and doesn't work. It's probably more amazing than anything I could even try to describe to you. But I know that the Holy Spirit wants to have a relationship with me that includes my body. And immorality is like trying to kick the Spirit out of your body, and you would never want to do that. You guys remember when Jesus walked into the temple and he didn't like what it was being used for? Anybody remember that? He walks into the temple and he sees this being used for the exchanging of money. And what did he do? He started flipping tables. He said, this is the temple. You don't just do what you want with God's temple. It's his dwelling place. Well, there's no structure in Jerusalem now. It's your body now. You're the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit now. And Jesus says, you need to use that rightfully. First of all, because I made your body and I made it for good. And second of all, that it's been bought and rebought with a price. On the way here in the, on the airplane, I was listening to uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity which you have to kind of listen to, stop, go back, listen to, stop, go back, listen to. It's very dense and challenging. But he was talking about, I was just on the plane on the way here, and he was talking about how God made your body to perform perfectly when doing moral things. Like it's built to do moral things. It's equipped, and when it does moral things, it feels good about it, and it's good for the body. But the body is not built for immoral things. And if it tries to do something it's not built for, it begins to break down. Things break when you use them for things they weren't built to do. So the mind is not built to lust in an inappropriate way. It's going to break down because it's being used inappropriately. The body is not built to be engaged in fornication and adultery. And if you do, there'll be a, a breakdown that occurs because of that. 
And so our text is telling us that we are a dwelling place of God and we need to flee immorality. You guys know what flee means, right? It's connected to that word fugitive. It means get as far away from those who are trying to put you in handcuffs. If somebody's trying to put you in jail, you need to get out of there. You get as far away as you can. You create as much distance as you can. You go as far as you can go. You would not, as a fugitive trying to escape the law, you would not have breakfast at a donut shop. That would not be wise because typically officers would be at the donut shop. You're going to eat as far away from there as you can. You wouldn't sleep behind a police station so you'd be safe. No, you would get as far away from that police station as you possibly could. An enormous mistake that we sometimes make as Christians is we believe that if we know that we should not commit immorality and we know that it's wrong, that we can be near it and stand tall. You cannot. You cannot. And it didn't say don't commit immorality in verse 18. It said if you've got a brain in your head and you know how to use it, you're going to create as much distance as possible. So that's kind of what we're talking about tonight. I'm not just going to lecture you on immorality, sin. You're going to go to hell if you do it. We need to talk about how do we escape it, run from it, and flee it. In that vein, there are three things we're going to talk about. I hope you have your pen or your pencil ready. And your Bible is open to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you've got all that going for you, you're ready for this. Here's the first thing we have to do if we really want to create distance between ourselves and this sin. Distance. Number one, we must flee arguments that seek to justify immoral behavior. Now, the first time you read that, flee arguments that seek to justify immoral behavior, you're probably thinking, nobody ever makes arguments to justify immorality, do they? Nobody in the church would do that. Nobody in the church would actually, on their inside, start coming up with reasons why immorality is okay. Folks, people do it all the time. All the time. Yeah, I know the Bible says it's wrong, but let me tell you why I'm doing it. You know, a little bit of pornography here just takes the edge off for me. It's really one of the reasons I've been able to stay in my marriage. Or you're not going to believe this, but pornography has actually been good for my marriage. People actually begin to argue for pornography. Yeah, my girlfriend and I were involved in some things we ought not be involved in, but we love each other. But it's only every once in a while. But, you know, we're going to get married. And you see what I'm doing? I'm giving you reasons for immorality. People talk about adultery. Look, if I hadn't committed adultery, I'd have left my family a long time ago. It's the only way I'm able to stay is by having this thing on the side. And, And I'm listening to these people thinking, you'll never be able to escape. Let me just put it to you this way. The devil on the outside of you is working really hard to draw you towards immorality. If you're working for him too, you will never defeat him. If you are actually defending the devil's positions, you know what? I I think there might be some reasons for that. Oh, I love this one. I love this one. I forgot about it. Well, you know, God will understand, you know. God knows about my situation. He knows what's unique with me. We're making it way too easy on the devil. Well, that's a lot of what's going on here in 1 Corinthians 6. I wrote a little paragraph for you here. A belief system called Gnosticism, which most people probably haven't heard of, was prominent in Bible times, but listen to this. This belief basically taught that as long as you know God in your heart, what you do with your body is of no spiritual consequence. Now, does that sound familiar? 
I don't hear a lot of people saying, well, I'm a Gnostic now. It's working out great for me. Most people don't know what that is. But you hear a lot of people who say, you know, I'm thinking things I shouldn't and I'm viewing things I shouldn't and we're doing things we shouldn't. But I know God and God knows me and God understands. And there are just some complications going on in my life. That was Gnosticism. And that's what he's fighting here. And I want to show you something interesting. First of all, I don't know what the tendencies are here in Alabama, so let me just do, get a little feeler question going. It's not actually going to be that controversial. But who is reading from an ESV tonight? English Standard Version. Three. Great. Four. Thank you. I didn't bring one. I was just wondering if you had one. I'll be reading from the New American, but let me show you something really interesting that the ESV does. And we have four here you can testify to this. There are quotation marks. There are statements in 1 Corinthians 6 that I've always found very baffling. They didn't make a lot of sense to me. I had some trouble kind of figuring them out. But if I can introduce to you the idea of a conversation in 1 Corinthians 6, I think you'll find it kind of interesting. I believe what's really going on here is some of these statements aren't the statements that Paul is making to the Corinthians. It's the statements that the Gnostics were making, and then he answers them. Let me show it to you, and you actually have them written on your sheet there. In verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. You ever wondered about that phrase? Why did Paul say all things are lawful for me? Raise your hand if that's true. See, it's not true. I know you probably weren't going to raise your hand. It's not true. There are things that are not lawful. I don't think he's saying that. You, the ESV captures this with quotation marks. So you see it in your text? All things are lawful for me. That's what the Gnostics are saying. As long as I go to church and I love God and I have this relationship with God, what I do in my flesh, ultimately grace is going to cover all that anyway. He said, no, not all things are profitable. Quote again, all things are lawful for me, unquote, but I will not be mastered by anything. I think their argument is that God knows my heart. I think that's their argument. And if you and I ever adapt the God knows my heart approach to immorality, immorality will destroy us. It will destroy us and we will be the ones who let it happen. A similar one, if you want to look at one that's a bit more challenging, is go down to verse 18. Verse 18 has given me fits for a long time. Verse 18, and I'm going to take out the word other here because it's added uh, by the translators. But let me read it this way. Flee immorality, I get. That makes perfect sense. And then he says, every sin that a man commits is outside the body. Is that true? Is it actually biblically true that every sin a man commits is outside the body? That's not true at all. Jesus taught about sin that starts inside of us and then comes out. I want you to think about putting quotation marks there. This is what the Gnostics were saying. Every sin that a man commits is outside the body doesn't actually reflect on the temple, doesn't even touch the Holy Spirit, and it does not interrupt your relationship with God. His answer is, but, the B-U-T, the but, that's what gives it away. He says, uh, sorry, buddy, but the immoral man actually is attacking his own body. So I would just say this, if I'm the kind of person who's justifying bad behavior because, you know, it doesn't really matter in terms of the Holy Spirit, then I'm going to be in trouble. Here's another one. Look in verse 13. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, again, some versions have captured this, but I put quotation marks around the first statement. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. That's the Gnostics' view. Oh, immorality. Well, it's just like... uh, 
It's just natural, you know. I mean, God made us to desire things like the food. You know, the stomach desires food, right? The food was made for the stomach. It's just sort of a a natural connection. And the same way, you know, the body is made for that activity and that activity was created. It's just natural. I'm just following the natural impulses. If God hadn't given me these impulses, it'd be different. But God gave them to me. You know what I think is going on in verse 13? I think Paul's saying that is a dumb argument. Food is for the stomach. Stomach is for food. He said, God will do away with both of them. Let's throw that one out. That's not even a good example. Here's the real comparison. The body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. You want a connection that's real? This body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for this body. I don't see a lot of room for immorality in that relationship, do you? I don't see a mind that can lust for things. I don't see an adulterous relationship in my future. If this is made for him and he for this. So their first argument, argument A, is it's not going to matter. Their argument B is it's just natural. And then, of course, there are no quotations for this. But in verses 15 and 20, it's that third argument, which is it's my body and I can do with it what I please. Verse 15, do you not know that your bodies, verse 15, are members of Christ? You've been baptized. You're a part of the body. Your bodies are members of Christ. So I then, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Verse 20. For you've been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Now be really kind and cordial the next time somebody says to you, it's my body. Be very kind and cordial. Take a deep breath and say, no, it's not. And then let me know how that went. I mean, really use that volume. That's what I want to tell people. No, it's not. It's never been your body. It's not your mind. It's not your body. These aren't your fingers. God, verse 19, made you. Then you and I went out and sinned and blew it. And so Jesus shed his blood on a cross to repurchase his own creation. I mean, just think about that. He said, you messed that up, but I'm going to die so that I get you again. He has double ownership of this body right here. There will never be any, it's my body justification. Now, here's the thing. If we can decide that there are no justifications for the four things I mentioned to you, general lust, pornography, fornication, and adultery, there's never a reason for it. It's not justifiable. You may still battle with it. The first point's not enough to get it out of your life forever, but at least you'll feel terrible every time. Let me tell you what's really dangerous. Do you want to know what's the most dangerous thing about sin that can happen? When you keep doing it and it starts feeling less terrible. Now that's scary. It starts feeling a little bit less terrible. And instead of every time I do it, I feel awful and I bow down before God. I start justifying why it's happening because I don't like feeling terrible. So I want you to write two words in that first box. You guys see that box on the right? I don't know if yours is in blue or not like mine is. But I want you to write two words, and I mean mean it. Don't write it unless you mean it. No excuses. That's our first term for tonight. I'll never make an excuse. I may still need help. I may still need an accountability partner. It may still be something I battle my whole life. But I will never, ever defend the devil's position again. And how I use my body or my mind. At least now we're fighting for something again. Instead of accepting it. Well, once we're willing to do that, 
and get ourselves in a place where we, we feel right when we do right and wrong when we do wrong, now maybe we can put some practical things in. I've written it out for you in Colossians 3. You're certainly welcome to open your Bibles there, but I have it there on the page. I'll read it. Let me read it first, and then we'll fill in the blanks. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, Colossians 3, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with God in Christ. I'm going to pause there a minute, because we talked to our young people the other night, so we'll make sure we're clear. That's talking about becoming a Christian. When you decide to go down in this water and come up, you have given your body, your mind, and your life to the Lord. You have died to that sin, and now you belong to Him. Now it says this, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed then you also will be revealed with Him in glory. Therefore, if that's what you want, consider the member of your earthly bodies as dead to, and he lists these things, immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, we can debate this another time, though I'm leaving tomorrow night and we probably won't. But I think all of those terms are related to immoral sexual behavior. I contend in this text that when you look at this list, and I believe it's the same with Ephesians 5, 5, it's almost the exact same verse that we read earlier. Immorality, impurity, passion, and evil desire naturally are connected to our topic tonight, but also greed for that which whom you ought not have, and it all just adds up to idolatry. Have you ever thought about that? That immorality is idolatry. That pornography is idolatry. You say, well, I got this little problem, but it's not like I'm an idolater. It is. It's saying, God, I'm taking what you want and who you are and what you built me to be, and I'm intentionally removing that and replacing it with something or someone else. We don't want that. So here's what we're going to do. First of all, no more excuses. Never going to justify it again. Flee all things that lead to or promote it. This is where we got to get real, okay? The first exercise was purely a mental exercise. It's about praying your way through it and getting over all those things that you might say. Now it gets real. We need to become dead to this behavior, and I want to show you a few things that can help. Open your Old Testaments to Proverbs chapter 7. A lot of places we could go for this, but you get several things here in Proverbs 7 I think you'll find useful. Let's begin with verses 1 through 7. You say, I want to make sure that my kids are as far away from this behavior as possible. I have an 18-year-old daughter who kind of thinks she might be in love and stuff. And she lives with me, and we talk about this a lot. We have a lot of conversations about this. I have a 16-year-old boy, which, of course, I mean, there's no issues there, of course. And Listen, I'm going to just say this. Parents, your 13-year-old boy... 14 and 15 and 16 year old boy, he is not equipped to handle the kind of onslaught we're talking about with this topic tonight. It is so pervasive that if he fights the best he can possibly fight and makes every possible good decision that he can, he still may not be strong enough. And dads, you may not be either. We need help and we need to create an opportunity for success. And here's how we do it. Verses one through seven. 
My son, keep my words and treasure my commandments within you. Proverbs 7, verse 1. Keep my commandments and live in my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. And call understanding your intimate friend, that they may keep you from an adulteress, from the foreigner who flatters with her words. For at the window of my house I look out through my lattice, and I see among the naive and discern among the youths a young man, verse 7, lacking sense. You guys know the rest of this story? We're going to read some of the rest of this story. But this guy is clueless. I mean, he's walking around by himself in the middle. What are you doing by yourself? What are you doing out in the middle of the night? Why are you walking the streets? What possible good thing can come out of this? What it says is not that he's out searching for sin necessarily. It just says that he's naive, verse 7. He's young and he's dumb. He doesn't know what the dangers are. He doesn't have much experience and he doesn't have a lot of common sense. And here's what I want you to write down first. If we really want to be careful here, we have to flee personal ignorance. This guy is ignorant. He doesn't understand the stakes. He's going to understand the stakes. He doesn't understand how powerful the opposite sex can be. And he doesn't understand how environments can destroy his life. He's about to find out. Can I just tell you, over these last maybe 10 years of preaching and the counseling sessions and the meeting at the kitchen tables and meeting with the teens and the married people and the whole deal, can I tell you how many times I hear something like this? I had no idea. I had no idea if I went to that party that they'd be doing that. I didn't even know that was at that party. I had no idea that after that little dance thing that we found a way to go to, that they were going to go to this hotel room. I had no idea. I had no idea at work that it was just going to be she and I every night after everybody else left. I just had no. The people look at you like, look, my justification is I didn't know. Folks, you cannot afford not to know. You just can't afford it. The devil's not like, oh, that guy over there, well, man, he's easy picking, but he doesn't actually know, so I'm going to pass him up and go find myself a pro to take out. No, 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 no. The devil loves ignorance. I didn't know we were going to do this. I didn't know they were going to smoke this. I didn't know they were going to drink this. I didn't know she had that in mind. I didn't know that, you know, they were going to have all these cable channels at this particular place. I'm saying, I didn't know any of that. You can't afford not to know. Because as you're going to see in this story, the devil takes advantage of ignorance. Parents, TikTok, that's your keyword. Ask when you get home. There are apps, there are access points on computers and cell phones, there are conversations, there are code words, and parents sit down and say, Chris, I just had no idea. That is your fault. Your kids need you to know. They need you to know what those apps do. They need you to know how to lock them out. They need you to know what they're up to. They need help. They're naive in part, verse 7. Young people still need to do their best. They need to know what's coming, what's behind the door before they open it. But look, verse 7, some young people just don't know. We have got to know. I'm just going to put it to you this way. My 16-year-old lives in my house. If my 16-year-old is accessing something on his phone that he ought not, if he is ending up with people he ought not be or at places he ought not be, while I know biblically that God will lay that upon him in judgment, I consider that 100% my fault. That's my kid in my house with the phone that I pay for and actually my truck a lot. He just turned 16. My truck just disappears all the time. Okay, He's in my truck a lot. 
I have to take responsibility. We all have to take responsibility. This kid's ignorant. It's going to cost him everything. But then there's more. If I don't know who's going to be there, or what they're going to be doing, or what the outcome is, now I'm going to get surprised and, and anything can happen. And also there's something else. Pick up with me in verse 6 again and we'll move through a little bit. For at the window of my house I looked out through my lattice and I saw among the naive and discerned among the youths a young man, a young man lacking sense, passing through the street near her corner, and he takes the way to her house. Maybe he does have some inclinations here. In the twilight, in the evening, in the middle of the night, and in the darkness. And behold, a woman comes to meet him, dressed as a harlot and cunning of heart. She's boisterous and rebellious. Her feet do not remain at home. She is now in the streets, now in the squares, and lurks by every corner. She seizes him and kisses him. And with a brazen face, she says to him, I was due to make, to offer peace offerings. Today I paid my vow. Therefore, I have come out to meet you, verse 15, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. Folks, we've got to flee, and I mean create real distance between us and immoral people. Now, we need to do more than that. I'm not quite done yet, but let's just start there. I know that a lot of the immorality that takes place are good people, maybe even Christian people who get in over their heads, though a naivety point will help with a lot of that. But let's at least, let's at least not be spending time with people who we know do not respect God or their bodies. If you know this is someone who seeks out relationships that aren't right, if you know this is someone who doesn't even understand the Holy Spirit and the purchasing of the body, then that is not someone you want to be dating. It's not someone you want to be alone with at work. You have to protect yourself. She pulled the trifecta here. That sinks many a ship and has destroyed many a family. First of all, verse 10, it was in the way that she dressed. Her attire was saying something. It was advertising something. It was drawing something. Her intentions became evident. I don't buy into all this new age, 21st century, you know, women can wear whatever they want. They're not sending messages. That's baloney and you know it. What you wear is sending a message about what's going on on the inside, and she's sending a message. She gets all three things. Number one, she is dressed as a harlot. Verse 13, she touches him. She seizes him. Her skin touches his skin no matter where. It doesn't even matter where. Like fingertips are enough, right? This, this electricity of touch. And she kisses him. And then, you know, the real icing on top for the gentleman is verse 15 when she flatters him with her words. I've come out to meet you, to seek your presence earnestly, and I have found you. You know, I don't want to preach all night on this, but you guys know the devil's got three tricks. That's it. His whole toolbox, everything he's got to try to get you involves three tools. You know what they are? 1 John chapter 2, the lust of the eyes, she's dressed like a harlot. The lust of the flesh, he see, she seizes him. And the boastful pride of life, I came out to see you. You're the one. See Adam and Eve in the garden. See, well, just see any sin you want me in between. We have to find out if the people associated with our young people, the people associated at your work, the people that are in your neighborhood, if there are people who are disposed toward these three actions, you must be careful. Immoral people. And then there's one more. You know what it is? Number one, we've got to stay out of situations where we don't know what's there. Got to know what's coming. No naivete. 
Number two, we need to stay away from people who we know have poor motives. But the first thing, of course, begins in verse 16. I have spread my couch with coverings, with colored linens of Egypt. I've sprinkled my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us drink our fill of love until morning. Let us delight ourselves with caresses. You know what's going on here. It's the environment. The third thing here is we've got to flee compromising environments. As soon as she got him to her house... And there's this, you know, some versions don't say bed, verse 17, they say couch. But this bed is, is sprinkled with these spices and everything. When he's in her room with those spices on the bed alone, it's over. It's finished. There's no way out. Well, you know, people say 1 Corinthians 10, 13, though. You know 1 Corinthians 10, 13? God will never put you in a situation that you can't overcome. With every temptation, he'll give you some out. It is not addressing people who, with naivete, join themselves with immoral thinkers in poor environments. There's no escape from that. There's no way out of that. The Lord gives us a way out if we're willing to do some smart stuff and be careful. Now, it's really interesting what happens here in verse 23. Her husband's gone, by the way. Good deal. You know, husband's gone. Everything should be fine. Suddenly he follows her, verse 22, as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as one in fetters to the discipline of a fool, dis, uh, discipline of a fool, until an arrow pierces through his liver as a bird hastens to the snare, so he does not know. What does he do, what does he do not know? What doesn't he know? That it will cost him his life. What, listen to that imagery. You know, he didn't know where he was going to go that night. He didn't know what was going to happen. He sees this person. He's in her bed. It kind of sounds like her husband comes home. And you know, they didn't have revolvers back then. They had bows and arrows. And he dies. You know, you think that's going to be one of these outlandish, impossible stories. You know, the first funeral I ever remember attending, I was about 13 years old. It was my mom's brother, my Uncle Jody. My Uncle Jody had a girlfriend, and he went to his girlfriend's house to take her out. And her husband answered the door. And her husband shot him in the stomach and he died. And he did not know that it would cost him his life, but he died anyway. Here's what I believe. I believe point number one, if we just stop making excuses and we own it and we call it what it is, and we know where we're going and we know who's going to be there, and even in the case of two Christians, even in the case of preachers and preachers' wives and elders and elders' wives, we all know the stories. You say, what happened to them? They found themselves in a place where they were alone. And that environment, let me tell you how strong environment is. Even if all the rest of this was fine, even if you weren't naive and you did have sense and the other person wasn't ill-intentioned, if you get into the wrong place, anything is possible. Flee poor environments. My daughter, you know. So, okay, quick, quick thing about her. We used to watch the Duggars. Anybody watch the Duggars? They're from Arkansas or somewhere, right? They're from Alabama, I think. But the Duggars, they had all these kids. It's a show on TLC. It's fine. It's cool. It's awesome. But they all made this deal that until they got married, she read the book. She gave me a chapter of the book to read one time that the girls had written. Their rules were, I'm not going to kiss them until we're married. Only side hugs in public. And every date we went on, one of the other siblings would always be with us. We would never be alone until the day we got married. What do you think Dad thought about that? <laughs> Dad loved that. And I remember, you know, the first time she wanted to go out on a date with her boyfriend. And I started quoting the book, and she's like, Dad. I'm like, what, Dad, what? We made a deal here. You know, you got to kind of roll with it here and there. 
And there are some compromises, but what I appreciate about them, she and her boyfriend now, everybody in our family and his family and everybody's family knows that they will never be in a structure with a couch or bed in it without other people there. Not ever, not anywhere. They know that's an unbreakable rule. And that's not just because I think that they have weaknesses. It's because they're two human beings who care for each other. If we can flee the environments that lead to it. So I'm going to ask you to turn to Romans 13. Romans 13, please. And I want you to write two more words down on the right. You're writing down no excuses. And now Romans 13, I'll read it for you. And maybe you'll know exactly what to write down. Romans 13, verse 11 talks about loving your neighbor, etc., and fulfilling the law. It says, do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. Romans 13, 11, from now, uh, for now salvation is near to us, and when we believe the night is almost gone, the day is near. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Now read this with me. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Are you ready? Got your pencil ready? And make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lust. He didn't just say don't do it. He said, don't even provide for it. Don't give it an environment. Don't give it oxygen. Don't give it space or lack of space. Don't give it anything it needs to grow, and it will not be allowed to grow. You know, what's really funny about this, and we need to get to the last thing, is I just think that there's people out there who think, you know, if you're a truly strong Christian, you'll be able to stand no matter how close it is to you. If you think that, I don't know you, it's not personal, but you're a fool. We see occasion after occasion of this. Let me give you some examples, like your cell phone. About nine years ago, eight or nine years ago, I handed my cell phone to my wife, and she put a passcode on my phone. You guys know you can do that? A little passcode? If you gave me $1,000 to access illicit content on my phone right now, I would not be able to do it. Maybe you could fly home and offer her $10,000. she has got the code. But she probably wouldn't do it either. I couldn't access illicit material if it was the one thing I had left to do in this life. I'm not going to get anywhere near something or create access to something that in my weakest moment I may reach out for. I don't want to be anywhere near it. And it's created safety in our home for our kids as well. One more thing. Really quickly go to 2 Samuel. We'll finish this up. 2 Samuel. You guys know the story. I'm not going to walk you through the whole story of David. And Bathsheba, you know it well. I want, to, I want you to see what happened after the story. But you know what happened. He's up on the roof and he sees her. And there are a couple things about immorality that make them so particularly dangerous. One is the addictive property. And the other is when you start getting drawn into immorality, it's like you're looking at life through a straw. Like all you can see is the person at the end of the straw. And you can't see God or your family or anybody else. And that's what David did. All he could see was her. And he committed drastic sin. Here's our last point. I want to flee that. I don't want it in me, around me, or attached to me because of the consequences. I don't like consequences. I don't like getting punished. I don't like feeling terrible about myself. I don't want to face those kinds of things. And we saw a lot of that in the case of David. But it didn't start with David. The first thing I want you to write down is flee because of the consequences. What consequences? Number one, the sorrow... That David's actions inflicted upon God. He hurt God. 
He insulted God. He sinned against God. He enraged God. This God who had done so much for him. Remember, your mind and your body is a temple, a place for the Lord to dwell. I don't want to inflict agony upon him. And so you see this building a little bit in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Let's get over there, 2 Samuel 11. You see it a little bit in verse 27. When the time of mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife. Then she bore him a son. But the thing that David had done was evil. Where was it evil? Who felt the pain of the evil? In the sight of the Lord. Chapter 12 and verse 9. Chapter 12 and verse 9. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by becoming evil in his sight? God is looking down at you, giving you all these blessings, and you're just, you're just throwing out all the stuff that he said. And then again in verse 13, David said to Noah, or to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Hebrews 6, where if I get caught up, I mean, I understand sometimes we sin and we repent and that's what we need to do. But you know, immorality is not like that. Immorality is not just sin once a year and repent and it's gone. It begins to build and grow and grab you. And if I let immorality grab me and hold my mind or body, it's as if I have laid... You guys know Hebrews 6? It's as if I'd laid Jesus back down on the wood, lifted the hammer, and drove in the nail with my own hand. You say, I would never do that. I would never crucify Jesus. I would never put Him through that again. Folks, if we let addictive sin dominate our lives, we're holding a hammer. And I just don't want to do that to Him. I don't want to do it. He's done too much. And he's too worthy. Number one is I don't want to make God hurt like that. Number two, of course, is the negative effect on other people. David's sin wasn't just about what he suffered. A lot of people suffered because of what David did. In 2 Samuel chapter 12, and beginning there in verse 10, there's so much we could look at here. But you know that Uriah dies, of course. And he goes on to say, verse 11, Behold, the Lord says, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this very thing before Israel and under the sun. So a boy, a child dies, a man dies. There's immorality and rape and all this junk that just dominated his house forever. A lot of people got hurt because of what he did. You know those stories I wasn't going to tell you at the beginning, I'm not going to tell you now, but in the church, we're a very tight group, and we know we need each other, and we have an interesting thing in the church called trust. You know what that's like? You can't trust a lot of what's happening out there, but I trust you. This is Tim Johnson's brother. I trust you, man. just met you tonight. That's my brother, just because his brother is somebody that I know. We trust each other. We just met yesterday. I trust you, man. We can go sit down and talk. There's a lot of trust in the church. And so when someone in the church, elder, preacher, anyone, gets caught up in this sin, guess who they throw out for the sake of this sin? Everybody. They kick them all out. They don't listen. They don't change. They do the most despicable things. And it hurts so many people. Do you understand that that immorality can cause souls in a way that you can never reverse or fix again? I'm not going to do it, folks. You say, well, you're never supposed to say that. Okay, let me rephrase. I'm going to take every step possible, every safeguard, everything I can do to never do that to you. 
And that's the kind of attitude we have to have. Because the last thing, of course, let's just go to Psalm 32 as we get to the end of this. Psalm 32. The third thing, first of all, it hurts God to see. Second of all, there are consequences in every direction. And then lastly, of course, is the, the pain that comes to yourself, the grief leveled against yourself. In Psalm 32, in verses 3 and 4, when I kept silent about my sin. And by the way, Psalm 32, this is David. This is how it felt when he was committing adultery and he was hiding it for all those months. What did that feel like, David? You know, somebody who knew the right thing to do and wasn't doing it. He said, here's what it felt like. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. You guys have some Texas summers up here in Alabama? We've got some summers where they will just knock you out. Where if you don't have water and refreshment, you will just absolutely fall apart. He said, I felt like that all the time. All the time. While I was covering it up, lying about it, justifying it, multiplying my sin to keep it going. He said, I felt like God's hand was just pushing down upon me and I couldn't even breathe. By the way, that was a gift of God that he felt that way. That's God's gift. He said, verse 5, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I acknowledge my sin to you, my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And he goes on to say, now I'm telling everybody they need to do that. I don't know about you, but I hate feeling guilty. I hate feeling shame, humiliation. I mean, I'm a preacher, right? I'm a, I'm a Christian. I'm raising a family. I know better. Whatever the sin is, I, I do and it just makes me feel terrible to fall back into things that I have a hundred reasons I shouldn't be doing. I just don't want to feel like that. I don't want to feel like that. I don't ever want to feel like that again. And if I do, I'm not going to justify it. I'm going to own it. I just did that. I did that. And I'm going to go to him. I want you to write down one more thing on the right. You ought to have three phrases that you're taking home with you tonight that applies to everything related to immorality and perhaps other things as well. No excuses. No provisions. And I want you to say this to yourself if you need to. Just to yourself if you need to. No more. No more. No more doing this to God. No more doing this to my family. No more doing this to myself. No more. Now, does that mean it will never happen again? Maybe it does. But if it doesn't, the first thing you should say after you've committed a sin you ought not have committed is no more. You say it again, and you say it again, and you never stop saying it until it's gone. Now, if you're someone sitting out there thinking, you know, this is a problem that I've been having in some degree, and I feel really terrible about that, because that's God's gift to you, by the way. That sorrow is God's gift. It's helping you know when you need to change. Just remember what David did, verse 5. He acknowledged his sin. And so I put this at the end of the lesson. We plead with all God's people not to fall into these traps. The consequences, of course, may never dissipate. However, for those who have fallen into immoral sin, take heart in the words from our initial text from 1 Corinthians 6. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. If we repent, 1 John 1, I love 1 John 1. If we repent and say never again and stand by the commitment to be holy to the Lord, He will forgive us 
and restore us to purity in His sight. No more, never again. God is a redeemer and a forgiver, but only those who know what they have done and who are ready to fight for what is right. Is that you? You ready to fight for it? For yourself, for your family, for those that you love. If you need our encouragement, if you need our support, you'll get it. If you're not a child of God, we mention this every night, we have to. If you're not a child of God, and you have not been baptized into Christ, and, and the blood is not there for you, how awful would it be to go to God, prostrate before Him, and bow down and beg for mercy and not get it? Not get it. If you want it, you've got to be a Christian. The blood of the Lamb will cover you in baptism. Come now as we stand together and sing.